This is the 10,000 Depositions Later podcast, episode 63. I'm Jim Garrity. Today's episode, about that pesky language in the deposition notice that says, for purposes of discovery and or for use at trial. Does that mean what it says? In other words, does including that language in a notice of taking deposition mean that the deposition can now be used at trial, whether the witness is unavailable or not? The answer, as always, is it depends, but it might. That language might have that effect. And its inclusion in the notice at least strengthens the argument that the proponent of using the deposition should be able to do that. And the general test of unavailability, the common predicate for use of a deposition in lieu of live testimony at trial, is loose enough that you should really plan on a definite possibility that depositions may be allowed even under the weakest showing that a witness was unavailable. Generally, a party who takes a deposition and includes that language in their notice, something along the lines of, for use in discovery, at trial, or both, or for any other purpose allowed by rule, must still meet applicable rules governing the use of depositions at trial or at hearing in place of live testimony. But the limited number of court rulings on this issue, specifically on the issue whether the inclusion of such language in a deposition notice has any force or effect at all, suggests that the courts take a liberal view and will allow the use of a deposition transcript in lieu of live testimony if it simply makes sense. In other words, courts around the country, state and federal, simply don't strictly enforce the procedural requirement that the proponent of a deposition in lieu of live testimony establish that the witness is unavailable or that there are extraordinary circumstances that should allow the use of the printed word in lieu of a live appearance. And since the pandemic that began in 2020, technology for remote testimony has obviously improved sharply. And we've all gotten used to accepting remote or deposition testimony in lieu of live in-person proceedings. So I think that liberal interpretation of the notion of a witness's unavailability is likely to continue and grow. Now, the federal rules, which of course apply across the federal spectrum and upon which a supermajority of state procedural rules are based, do say that a deposition can be used in place of live testimony when a witness is unavailable but they say nothing at all about deposition notices. So the drafters addressed this topic and obviously had the ability to include another titled subsection, perhaps called when notice reserves right to use deposition at trial, but they didn't. So the power to make a decision whether a deposition can be used in lieu of live testimony, whether a witness is truly unavailable has been assigned under the rules to the court. Under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 32, titled Using Depositions in Court Proceedings, subsection A4, subtitled Unavailable Witness, says the deposition can be used by any party if the court finds any of the following. And I'm paraphrasing. Subsection A, I can use a deposition based on unavailability if the witness is dead. Obviously, the quintessential definition of unavailability. Law firm receptionist, Mr. Garrity's office, caller. Yes, I'd like to speak with him, please. Receptionist, I'm sorry, he's unavailable. Caller, um, unavailable as in he's in a meeting or unavailable as defined by rule 32A4. 
receptionist. Click. All right, subsection B of the rule. I can use a deposition based on unavailability if the witness is more than 100 miles from the hearing or trial or is outside the U.S. unless the party offering the deposition caused the witness's absence. So obviously I can't use a deposition because a witness is unavailable if I caused that unavailability. Subsection C under the federal rules and most state rules. I can use a deposition based on unavailability if the witness cannot attend or testify because of age, illness, infirmity, or imprisonment. Now that standard is obviously very loose because what does that mean? That a witness cannot attend or testify because of age. What age? Age by itself shouldn't even be a factor. What illness? What infirmity? Now I understand that there are some illnesses and infirmities that will automatically render someone incapable of testifying, but the point is that there are no standards or criteria built into the rule on that. Now I will say this, do take note of the either or language. I can use a deposition based on unavailability if the witness cannot attend or testify. So at least under the language of the federal rule, these conditions that define unavailability only apply if the witness cannot attend in person and also cannot testify by some other means, such as video connection. So under the federal rules and the states that have adopted the same language, the movement or proponent of a deposition in lieu of live testimony has to show both that the witness cannot physically attend and also that the witness cannot appear by some other means. So very important to read the language of the rule very carefully. It's easily to slip past some of these qualifications. In fact, in one of the decisions cited in the show notes for this episode that we ran across while doing our research, we found one court that misread its own legal standard. That's the Dockery decision from an Indiana Court of Appeals. That was a criminal case, and the Court of Appeals upheld the use of a deposition at trial by saying there had been a sufficient showing that the witness in question was proven to be physically unable to attend and testify. But again, it's not attend and testify. It's not a single standard. There are two standards built into that, and the court got it wrong. So while there appeared to have been a showing that the witness was physically unable to attend, as best I can tell, there was no evidence that the witness could not have testified remotely. Now, I understand judges are very busy, but that's why it's important that we go through these rules and parse every single word to ensure that both the courts and opposing parties are correctly applying these standards. All right, subsection D under the federal rules, uh, subsection 32A4D. I can use a deposition in lieu of live testimony if I can't arrange for the witness's appearance by subpoena. So this is a slightly different category. This can apply obviously when the witness is hiding or maybe not hiding, but simply can't be found. If you can't find them, you can't subpoena them. And under uh, subsection A4D, you've satisfied the showing of unavailability. And last subsection E, I can use a deposition in lieu of live testimony if there are exceptional circumstances that make it desirable in the interest of justice and with due regard to the importance of live testimony in open court. As with the previous subsections, there are no definitions or factors or criteria for either you or a court to use in figuring out when you have exceptional circumstances, so it's going to be situational. Remember, too, that this language, which is fairly liberal, 
was written before the COVID pandemic, so I think courts began adapting quickly to the use of remote video testimony and the more frequent use of depositions in lieu of live testimony. So I think they're much more likely over time to find more often that sufficient circumstances exist to allow a witness to testify either remotely or through deposition testimony. So these are the five circumstances under the federal rules and generally under a substantial majority of state rules where a witness can be deemed unavailable. Obviously, no hint in these rules that just because a party issues a deposition notice saying that they might use the deposition at trial, that it's okay to do so. But you should know this, these five categories of unavailability are not tough standards to meet. And when you combine these relatively loose standards with what is arguably your actual knowledge from a deposition notice by the examiner, that they might very well use it at trial, you've got to plan your deposition and trial strategy around the very real possibility, even probability, that the deposition and not a live witness might show up. Basically, what we get from a reading of these five categories is that you can and should plan on seeing at least some of the depositions in your case offered in lieu of live testimony. If there are special circumstances, if the witness is too old, whatever that means, is sick or infirm or couldn't be slapped with a subpoena or is too far away at the time of trial. We have five cases in the show notes on this topic where courts specifically referred to an examining lawyer's reservation of the right to use the deposition at trial in the notice of taking the deposition itself and where it appeared in the court decision that that language in the notice was a determining factor in the court's decision. Of the five decisions we've provided you, four courts said that such language in the notice was enough to put the opposing party on alert that the deposition may be used at trial and the courts allowed it for that reason. The fifth court, the only one of the five, said no, that without a clear showing of unavailability, the inclusion of such language for use in discovery and or at trial isn't enough to warrant admission of the deposition at trial. In that fifth case, by the way, the appeals court reversed a trial verdict in favor of the plaintiff, specifically because of the admission of a deposition where there wasn't a proper showing of unavailability. So what's the core lesson today? Because most deposition notices now include this qualifying language that the deposition might be used at trial, you'll always want to give thought as to whether you need to conduct a full examination of the witness in the deposition or whether you can safely hold your cross until trial. All right, some additional things to think about before or during a deposition itself. Number one, does it appear to you that the deponent is currently old, again, whatever that means, infirm, ill, sick, or in prison? Number two, is the witness likely to fall into one or more of those categories at the time of trial? Number three, has the deponent said something previously or in the deposition right now that indicates that they might be unavailable, that they're moving for a new job or for college or relocating for some other reason or traveling or that they're suffering some other condition that might cause unavailability? Is there something evident to you right now about their particular condition, background, or career that would make it difficult or impossible for them to attend a trial in person. Something else to think about. 
is the opposing lawyer asking questions of the witness that suggest to you that they are trying to develop proof of unavailability? Are alarm bells going off in your head about the line of questioning? Doctor, would appearing in person at a trial in this case cause you inconvenience or disrupt the lives or medical care of your patients? If you start to hear questions like that or anything relating to these criteria, you had better either conduct your full examination or ask your own questions to undermine arguments of unavailability later. Don't just sit there and let the deposition close without attacking that line of questioning. Otherwise, a judge is likely to point to that testimony and further point to the fact that you didn't attempt to develop any testimony to the contrary. All right, I wanna give you two more categories of practice tips and then we'll wrap up. In this first group of tips, I'm gonna tell you how to maximize the likelihood that you can use a deposition in lieu of live trial testimony if that's what you wanna do. And then in the second group of practice pointers, I'm gonna tell you how to maximize the likelihood that an adversary cannot use a deposition in lieu of live testimony. All right, so if you're the one who's the proponent of the deposition and you wanna increase your odds of being able to use it at trial, do the following. Number one, be sure to include the language about reserving the right to use the deposition at trial in your notices. Frankly, that should be in every notice you send out as a matter of course, whether you actually plan to do that or not. Number two, in your deposition of the deponent, ask those foundational questions to establish future unavailability, their age, their medical condition, their line of work, the impact of having to appear at a live trial, future plans on moving or relocating, the impact on their spouse or family members who may be ill and depend on their assistance, or unusual financial hardship. You may have to talk to some of these witnesses in advance so that you know what facts to explore on the record to support unavailability arguments. Number three, if a dispute develops that requires court intervention on this topic, be sure to point out that you put language in your notice and got no objections. Number four, point out that the opposing party has not countered your proof of unavailability. Number five, point out that the opposing party had and took advantage of the full opportunity to question the witness in deposition and so can't possibly be prejudiced. Number six, argue the actual language, the standards of your statute or rule, especially if you couldn't subpoena the witness or you tried to persuade them to appear but couldn't or you got them to agree to show up without a subpoena and now they've simply failed to show up. Number seven, argue that there simply is no actual prejudice of any kind for any reason. Number eight, if the opposing side says that they're prejudiced because they can't conduct a live cross-examination at trial, argue that there is no evidence that a live cross would make any difference whatsoever in the witness's testimony. On the other hand, if you want to maximize the likelihood that an adversary will be barred from using a deposition in lieu of live trial testimony, do this. Number one, serve a counter notice prior to the deposition, perhaps simply titled Notice of Objection to Use of Deposition at Trial, and then include one or two lines that points out that the notice says the deposition may be used at trial and that your client objects on the grounds that reserving such rights is not recognized by the rules and that you are not waiving your right to object to the use of the uh, deposition at trial absent a showing as actually required by the rules. Number two, you could make that same objection briefly live in the deposition on the transcript. Number three, 
you should counter any foundational questions asked by an adversary about availability. If it appears the witness will not be able to travel or appear in person or is making those claims, then develop testimony yourself that they can appear by live video. Remember that the rule says the test of unavailability is determined by the witness's inability to attend or testify. So it's a two-pronged standard, not one. The party seeking to use the deposition testimony has to make two showings. One, that the witness is physically unable to attend, and two, that the witness can't testify even if allowed to testify remotely. That's a much more difficult showing these days. Video is everywhere. Internet is everywhere. There are, of course, some circumstances where witnesses can't even testify live if they wanted to. For example, some countries, China in particular, have very strict rules that forbid or even criminalize the taking of depositions there physically within China's borders for use in other countries. So being unable to testify live doesn't just mean they don't have a signal. It could be the jurisdiction where they will be located at the time of trial. You have to find that out. Number four, beware of stipulations announced by the adversary or by the court reporter at the beginning of the deposition. In some jurisdictions, for example, in some states, the court reporters themselves will announce a stipulation on the record as a matter of course, whether you specifically told them to do it or not. And it goes something like this, quote, it is stipulated by and between the parties that this deposition is taken pursuant to notice duly served and filed and that all questions as to sufficiency of notice are waived, that all objections except as to the form of the question are reserved until the time of trial, that this deposition is taken for purposes of discovery and forward slash or for use at trial or both, and that the reading and signing of the deposition by the witness are not waived, close quote. I've been in a number of depositions in other states where court reporters read off this litany of waivers and other conditions. If your reporter announces something like that, or if the opposing lawyer does, you've got to speak up and make clear that you are not agreeing to each of these waivers and stipulations unless, in fact, you did. Particularly, the stipulation as to the use of the deposition at trial. If the notice says it might be used at trial, and you don't object either to the notice or to that kind of language announced at the start of the deposition, you're already down two strikes. All right, fifth point in opposition to the use of these depositions. State on the record, even if you've already cross-examined the deponent, that you are reserving your right to conduct a trial examination at the trial of the matter. That's another step to take in order to make it clear on the record that you were not waiving any objections. Point number six, if you get to trial and this issue comes up, argue that the opposing party has not properly presented sufficient evidence of unavailability. And finally, point number seven, argue that proof of unavailability also includes proof not just that the witness can't physically attend, but also that the witness can't testify live by video. It's not just that they're out of town, too old, infirm, sick, even in prison there's also got to be a showing that the witness cannot appear by live video. And that's going to be a much tougher showing these days. So you want to keep in mind that there are two different prongs to that and you need to attack both prongs. All right, that's it for today. As always, the cases are in the show notes and we put the full case names, the full citations and the parentheticals in the notes in every episode where we rely on case law as a research tool for you to help you get a fast start. And as always, thank you for listening.
Be sure to check out the book on which this podcast is based, 10,000 Depositions Later, the premier litigation guide for superior deposition practice. Now in its third edition at 450 pages and available just about everywhere you get your books. Have a great day.